Hey, everybody. Absolutely electric episode of the morning show today with the one and only DC investor, uh, one of my favorite follows on Twitter, extremely knowledgeable individual when it comes to all things crypto and NFTs. He's an art blocks maxi, has collections like Fidenzas, Ringers, Meridians, the kind of very notable generative art collections. He's got all of them, Autoglyphs, CryptoPunks, all of these, right? Big time Ethereum guy. We talk about Ethereum layer one. We talk about the layer twos he's excited about. We talk about the development of Ethereum long-term. It is a juicy, juicy show. We talk about you know Solana and his opinions on that, his opinions on Yuga Labs. We kind of talk about everything. It's a really, really fantastic listen. I really uh, encourage you to listen to it. Uh, we also do a free NFT for our artist spotlight drop by an artist named Joyce Karotkin. So if you go to the nifty.com slash claim and put in the password elsewhere, you can claim Joyce's work. Joyce also did a drop, a li- very limited drop in parallel. So very cool stuff having an artist spotlight on the day of DC. But anyway, hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the NFT Morning Show, Wednesday, October 4th. Very special episode. We are joined by none other than the DC Investor. Second appearance on the show. DC, what's going on? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to chat with you this morning. Absolutely. We're excited too. Long overdue. Uh, Today, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to discuss, uh, you know, some of the kind of Action that we're seeing in this bear market. We'll touch upon friend tech. Uh, we'll touch touch on the SBF trial, and then of course we want to talk all things NFTs and macro with DC. I want to mention that today's artist spotlight drop is in partnership with Joyce Kar- Karotkin. So artist spotlight is something we do here to support artists uh, in the NFT space. It's not sponsored. Um, in fact, we actually uh, work with the artists to just get them as much exposure as they can. Joyce is an internationally featured artist that is not shy to experiment with her styles and mediums. Uh, She's written extensively on art for various internationally published art journals and is also an art educator, co-founding the Young uh, Curators Museum Art Curriculum. Uh, So as a fun surprise, she actually announced a limited edition drop only for the listeners that just went live. So if you go to uh, JoyceKarotkin.com, you can check it out. There's a pinned tweet on the Twitter spaces. Clemente will have the YouTube uh, tweet on, or excuse me, the YouTube link, uh, you know, prepared as well on screen. Um, but look, let's just get right into uh, the meat and potatoes of today's show. DC, you've been through several crypto cycles, and this has been a, a very interesting one, at least from my perspective. What do you make of where we're at in this crypto cycle? And I think we do have to get go deep on Ethereum because I know you're a big Ethereum guy, um, and it's been a uh, kind of wild you know, a couple of months here for Ethereum, but I'd love to know what's your perspective on where we're at in this crypto cycle? Well, we're in the, in the depths of the bear market. (laughs) And what else can we say beyond that? Almost. It's kind of like, we're still in a bear market. Um, That being said, I think we've um, been through a lot as, as a market overall. And we saw, I I think we've probably seen the market low after the FTX collapse, um, which happened. When was that? That was back in, like June or uh, June 2022, around then is, or that's when we saw the sell-off of a lot of the assets. So it was actually before the FTX collapse, but we saw a huge sell-off where Ether went down to like $900. Um, I think a lot of people have been waiting for newer lows beyond that. But I think the question is, are we going to have another event where we see a, an exchange selling off customer assets? I mean, I guess if you're uh, like uh, if you really fear Binance or something like that, which I'm not going to go there on my f- 
use on Binance. I don't think it's necessarily as extreme as FTX by any means, even if there is bad behavior there. But I think overall, the market has probably bottomed back then. So where are we now? We're kind of in this bearish chop period, right? Where things, it's really hard to see, force things down much further um, than they have already gone. That doesn't mean we couldn't retest certain lows. Like I think we could easily retest like the $1,400 level on Ether or something like that. Um, and I'm not a trader, by the way. I've kind of been in, uh, you know, my public point of view is I'm pretty much allocated and I have been for several months for uh, an even in excess of a year at this point. I'm not trying to time this perfectly because for those of us who have been through previous market cycles, it was like, you know, there was that person that was trying to time the perfect entry on Ether. And instead of buying ETH at like $100, you know, they're waiting for it to go back down to 80 or 40. And then all of a sudden it's like 400 or 800 and they're buying in or, or 1440 or whatever. So I think overall, we're just, we're navigating our way through what I, what I believe is probably the near end of this bear market. The near end. Very yeah. interesting. Nick, go ahead. Are you still uh, primarily... So, I mean, you, you've been long uh, bullish Ethereum. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I want to call you an Ethereum maxi, but I feel <laughs> like uh, you're uh, on the spectrum. <laughs> I feel like you're, you're, you're the of, the, of the Ethereum maxi spectrum. I'm going to put you as, uh, decently high up there. Or are you also like exposed to other blockchains? Uh, on this show, we've talked a lot about like Solana, for example. Uh, the primary reason for that is just uh, mm -hmm. developer adoption. Um, there's also speed of transactions and other things. You can argue about uh, the how it's more centralized. And yep. there, there, there's a lot of uh, potential FUD opportunities associated with it. But um, w what's your view of the landscape today as it applies to sort of like, like you're invested, you're in, in this space. And, and you've been uh, positioned mm -hmm. for the past year. What what does that look like? Is it still primarily like Ethereum? Well, let me let me start off with the Maxi um, point of view because it, you know you could say I'm a huge Ethereum fan. I'm definitely primarily exposed to Ethereum and Ether and related assets. Um, I don't consider myself a Maxi because I don't go out there and tell people, "Hey, your other assets are worthless, and here's why." And you should only buy Ether. You know, to me. That is more of a maximalist point of view. Um, I think everybody has to buy assets and choose the ecosystems they want to participate based on their own personal risk profile, based on the areas that kind of align with their strongest kind of points of interest. And for me, most of that activity just happens to be on Ethereum. Um, and I do own a lot of like the layer two tokens, and I'm kind of optimistic about the future of some of those. Um, I think there are going to be some layer ones which, which do well this next cycle. Whether they have staying power beyond that is kind of something I'm not really sure about, to be perfectly honest with you. This is this goes back to my Ethereum, maybe my Ethereum roots and perhaps some bias. But Ethereum has kind of already proven itself, right? It's already bootstrapped a lot of value. It was able to now total total value locked on all these networks is down significantly from the from the bull market. But Ethereum this cycle has kind of graduated into really a different class. And if you look at the performance in particular of Ethereum versus BTC. Um, which looks like it might be turning over for some period of time here. We'll see how long that lasts, but it's done remarkably well. It's done way better than other altcoins versus Bitcoin. It's done way better than Ethereum versus Bitcoin in previous cycles. 
So I think some of that, um, you know, Ethereum has been significantly de-risked. And at least for where I am in, in my life and what I want to participate in, it's where I want to be, right? I think there's going to be a lot of experiments on other chains which don't necessarily work out. And that's that's okay. You know, I mean, like, if you're having fun and you're learning something and, and participating in those, that's great. I do think in looking at Solana um, in particular, there has been a strong community that stuck around there through the bear market. It's just one of the things that as a participant or, or possible investor, that's something I'd want to see. So I think we've seen that. As far as how strong that remains through the bull market, I, I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, and I, I do own a little bit of Solana just for fun. You know, I don't know. It's not like a huge percentage of my net worth, but I did buy some because um, I see the community is passionate and they're out there and they're doing stuff. I'm not a user of the chain. I'm, I'm probably not going to be, but um, I'm curious to see what happens. I think the other overhang that gets talked about a lot is... FTX has all, all the soul and I'm not going to say, I mean, like those types of flow dynamics do matter. And when they choose to sell that stuff off, we'll see how it goes. But if there's demand to buy it at that point, then it'll get absorbed. Yeah. I mean, very good point. So look, you talked about us being where you think um, is, you know, toward the end of a bear market. How do you factor in the Bitcoin having it all? Because I know you owned Bitcoin for a long time before Ethereum, you switched to Ethereum. Is the Bitcoin yeah. having in your mind something that uh, has a major effect on these cycles? Because I mean, look, if, if you're saying that we're near the end of a bear market here, then it is lining up that this would be another four year cycle, right? It kind of lines up almost perfectly with four years. If you look back at 2019, 20, 2020. So I'd just be curious right. to, to know how you think through that. I think the having, you know, it's hard for me to say that the having is what causes it. It's definitely a good narrative. There's no question about that. And it seems to align with the four-year cycle. That said, a lot of assets, um, especially commodity assets, seem to operate on four, eight, 16-year cycles. Um, and I recommend you guys follow um, Bob Lucas because he's kind of like a master cycle trader and a real expert on how some of these commodity cycles work. So whether the halving causes it or is just coincidentally timed with it, there's no doubt that the halving definitely brings about a new wave of attention into Bitcoin, into crypto overall, right? And the difference from previous cycles, you know, back when I got into Bitcoin in 2013, there was really nothing else material. There were a bunch of like smaller coins, which have all basically faded to irrelevance. I mean, except for you could argue Litecoin has somehow stuck around. <laughs> you know, Litecoin maybe has some windy effect. There's a lot of other stuff like Purecoin, Namecoin. All that stuff is pretty much irrelevant at this point. But now you have a lot of other coins outside of Bitcoin which have achieved true relevance. And, and the first among those, obviously, is Ether. Um, so I definitely... It, what brings interest into Bitcoin, if the having brings interest into Bitcoin, it doesn't stop at Bitcoin, right? It goes all the way through into all these other assets. And what you see is as risk appetite heats up in the market, these other, let's call them longer tail assets, tend to get more and more attention. And I think we're going to see, I don't see a reason why that cycle isn't going to play out again. I see all the same stuff that we saw in previous cycles where media is declaring crypto dead. I mean, man, they're piling so hard onto NFTs. And it's just like, you know, at this point, you don't talk about something like that over and over again, unless it's actually important. I think that's the takeaway for me from all of that. Yeah, you said that um, uh, real quick. You said that the Bitcoin having makes uh, people pile into other stuff. They pile into Dogecoin. 
FTC is what yep. we end up seeing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the thing is, and it's hard for me to say, yeah, if it was that easy, yeah, just buy Dogecoin because it'll pump harder than Bitcoin off the bottom. But it's it's kind of like those meme narratives shift a lot. And it's, you know, so I don't really own stuff like that because I, I prefer to own stuff that has value. I know there's a lot of like meme coin traders, but just just recognize the game you're playing if you own that stuff. Oh yeah, I mean, I own a thousand bucks of Dogecoin, <laughs> and I, I actually think that there's some real upside there. So. <laughs> there could be, man. There could be. <laughs> Nick, what were you going to ask? Uh, the well, I'm actually wondering. We had discussed this before. I feel like, but in terms of like your own investment portfolio, I'm mm -hmm. curious how, like, how exposed percentage wise would you say it to like the crypto space as a whole? Um, you also have uh, NFTs. Uh, I'm curious. I have a question about that as well. Sure. Um, and what your sort of, I guess, the second part of this would be: what What do you think um, the right positioning is for uh, NFTs versus crypto for the next, uh, you know, over the next few years? Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's start with. Um, so, in terms of my percentage alignment, it's hard to say because the value of my assets shifts around a lot. Yeah. Like, I have no idea how to evaluate my NFTs. I kind of mark them down to like near zero mentally. Same here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's the that's a good way to think about it. Um, that being said, they're still pretty liquid, and they're more liquid than a lot of my real world assets. Um, so, so it's it's a hard balance, but I would say like, look, I think my asset allocation maybe isn't super relevant. Because um, you know, I'm fortunate that I got to a position where I have I have I have more assets than I need, right? In general, and so I am actually disproportionately weighted in crypto, probably much higher than like I would recommend to most people, right? And it's because you know I did well. I, I was able to secure you know a lot of what I want in the real world and what I need in the real world. You know, I don't, I'm not that big on having like a ton of material possessions, you know, I just want to have certain nice things. And I just like to keep it at that. I say that as I've got my racing rig back here, which is totally <laughs> superfluous. <laughs> I do like playing with nice toys, but, but the point is like, I'm not out there buying like luxury goods and stuff like that. That's just not me. Right. And so for me, I have way more in crypto than I would recommend to most people in terms of what I would recommend to most people. And let's say like your average listener is someone who's got a nine to five job, you know, maybe they're, young professional or something like that. And they're just trying to figure out how do I get exposure to crypto? I would say, you know, don't put more than like 20% into crypto um, at the, you know, depending on your age and, and what your risk profile is. Right. And I mean, part of it is if you've built up a lot of assets of your lifetime, like let's say you've got a 401k and it's got a bunch of money in it and you, you run the projections out and that's enough to like retire off of one day, then you can start to take bigger risks, you know, and which is why I always tell like young people in particular, like the most valuable dollar you're going to earn is the dollar you earned yesterday, right? Um, and every dollar after that is worth less. So you really want to set yourself up to put some of that into conservative assets, be it stocks or whatever, because as that builds up over time, right? If you start doing that in your 20s, it is worth so much by your 30s and 40s. And all of a sudden you're going to look around and you're going to have a lot more saved. And then you can tell yourself, you know what? I can afford to take bigger risks. And it's kind of at that point, like the percentage allocation becomes somewhat irrelevant because you have enough to maybe secure your future in some sense. I mean, this is how I succeeded in crypto, quite frankly, back in like the 2016, 2017 timeframe. I had saved up a bunch of money elsewhere. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to keep that in conservative assets and I'm going to go hard in some of this crypto stuff because this is maybe a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I did that through the last bear too. And I think. You're going to hear some similar stories, hopefully, coming out of this bear market as well. 
Well, I mean, you're totally you're saying I should I should move everything into crypto right now, <laughs> which is good. Um, that's reasonable advice. It, the what was the and the second part of that was oh, about yeah. the NFTs. Uh, sorry, what was the question on NFTs again? Like in terms of NFTs versus crypto, because there's clearly uh, like, I, I do see a lot of upside in Solana personally. I, mm -hmm. I have, look, I have uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Solana. Those are the three okay. like crypto assets that I uh, primarily have exposure to. Um, whatever, everyone can make their their choice on uh, weighting of each of those things. Mm -hmm. um, the the question that that I'm curious about those. It looks like for a lot of those, it's double, triple, quadruple, five, like two, three, four, five hundred percent, like uh, uh, X mm -hmm. to five percent, or two, three, four, five X. Sorry, um, if you're holding an NFT right now, I'm thinking, and I, I know that you like the crypto art side of things um, mm -hmm. as well as like CryptoPunks and uh, that sort of uh, things that all pro more likely to sustain value over an extended period of time. How do you think that's going to operate? Because the narrative last time was um, a, a, amongst a lot of people on uh, NFT Twitter, which, you know, that's that's the best place to get advice, is, <laughs> yeah. um, is that uh, essentially the NFTs, if ETH pumps, NFTs pump. Well, we, we disproved that, uh, or, mm -hmm. like, consistently. But that was a narrative early on in, like, 2021, which was, like, yeah, but now the price of ETH is higher, so the price of your punk is higher. But instead, a lot of those things readjusted down as crypto like pump. What's the positioning relative to crypto that you think like is a, a reasonable? None of it's reasonable at that point, I guess. But but <laughs> but let's just spitball here for a moment and say, hey, I I, I like in crypto versus mm -hmm. NFTs, 20, 30%, or or maybe the question is, how do you think that's going to perform relative to crypto? I think the reality is. Not all NFTs are created equal, right? We all know that intuitively, but we often tend to view it as, you know, a lot of people view it like as what percentage should I have in NFTs? And I think the reality is, look, a lot of NFTs are not going to make it or they're not going to make it in the way that you expected, or they're not going to get back to those all-time highs that we saw previously. I think the more utility that is baked into some of those NFTs, it creates more risk and also potentially more reward. Um, I think the economics for some of that stuff have, have maybe fallen apart, which we can talk about a little bit if you guys want. But I think that like, so, so for me, I'm, I'm way over indexed on art and I have been basically for the past couple of years. My approach for when I started to buy that stuff was really like, I see this as an emerging cultural trend for humanity. I see the ownership of non-fungible digital assets as being culturally important. And I wanted to have exposure to that upside. So I actually invested relatively little of my net worth at that point. I mean, it was still a lot of money in absolute terms, but at that point, like it was probably like, I, it's hard for me to put a number, but it was like less than 10% or it was around 10%. And I was like, you know what, if this goes to zero, that would really suck. But I was like, if this takes off and it ended up taking off from there, it was like, this is going to be kind of my land grab. This is my chance to get exposure. I think we're seeing a similar opportunity again in some NFTs, especially in art NFTs. Like if you believe in this thesis that like people are going to value digital assets in the future, if you believe in the thesis that people are going to like want to live in digital worlds, be they AR, VR, or even just in our 2D screens more and more, if you believe that cultural and status symbols are going to be reflected in that, in that medium of ownership, 
then there's a lot of stuff that's like deeply, deeply discounted right now. And those will only be clear in hindsight, right? To be clear. Um, I'd like to say everything I own is going to like go up one day and it's going to be great. And a lot of the stuff I've owned, I own stuff works from a lot of great artists. I own a lot of generative art because I think the value proposition of generative art for me has always been strongest. Um, but there's going to be other genres of stuff that go up. There's going to be, there's going to be some of these profile pictures that come back. Right. But it's hard for me to say like, yeah, you know, Nick, you should have 20% of your crypto portfolio in NFTs. Cause if you pick the wrong NFTs, man, it's just like, it, it, that that number is going to zero. So I would actually say for most people don't have more than like 25%, right? Now I'm probably over that at this point, to be honest. Um, but again, I'm willing to take that bigger risk because like the idea, like, you know, just to, I'll just pick like one of my more valuable NFTs, like that the thought of me selling an autoglyph right now or a punk right now would be so painful. It's like, if I don't need the money, I don't want to sell it because I think the long-term value proposition could be, huge, you know? And so I think if you're playing with smaller amounts, only buy NFTs that you really kind of believe in. Don't like I see some people who are like, oh, NFTs will are like an indexed version of Ether and they'll outperform me. And by the way, I do want to touch on this. Like I'm seeing some of the barbell portfolio folks on, on my timeline again now who are like, <laughs> just buy Solana and Bitcoin. You don't need Ether. And, you know, either really embarrassed a lot of people who had those kinds of views during the last cycle. Um, so I don't see any problem with owning either any of those three assets, weight them appropriately, but you probably don't want to skip over Ether because this is, I mean, if, if we're right, if I'm right, Ether is emerging as like a new money for the internet. It's, it's the core of these decentralized economies. Apps on Ethereum do well because there's so much liquidity in Ether. That's just a really hard thing to overcome. And so, you know, that doesn't mean Solana won't have a place or Bitcoin won't have a place. But if you believe in this digital economy, you got to own some Ether. So I really encourage people to have a lot of Ether, frankly. Well, so DC, uh, real quick, Nick, uh, I was literally about to ask um, what you thought about ETH as money, uh, because this is something mm -hmm. I talk about on the show a lot. I'm a huge Bitcoin guy. I also have, you know, a significant amount of my net worth in Ethereum. So it's not that I don't have exposure to Ethereum. I'm just sure. not adding to ETH right now. I'm adding to Bitcoin and to Solana. So I guess I'm a barbell guy that also has uh, a bunch of Ethereum. Um, on the money side, you said the the money for the internet. Do you also see it becoming just money in general, like basically re replacing the kind of narrative that Bitcoiners try to present when it comes to Bitcoin? Is that how you view Ethereum? Do you view you know, uh, like, uh, sovereign funds having a more Ethereum than Bitcoin, you know, things like that. Um, in a word, yes, over a longer period of time. And I think that the advantage that Bitcoin has is, um, it's social consensus is hardened to a point where they're not really going to change the protocol. Right. And some people consider that bullish. I think long-term that's actually pretty bearish, but I think like the, the time frame over which that's going to play out could be decades at this point. Um, so we're, I'm just going to put that argument aside for a second and talk about why I think Ether has a shot at that. I think Ether is, um, you know, and when we say like Ether's money, that was kind of like a meme created in the depths of the bear market because um, of the last bear market. And a lot of people like took that like the wrong way. They're like, oh, you can't use Ether's money. It's volatile as hell. It's like whatever. And it's just like, but it got everybody talking about it. So it's successful in that regard. The reality is anyone who uses, who participates in this on-chain economy understands that Ether is money. You're using it as money. You're using it as that base pair that you're trading against. A lot of people have a goal of increasing the amount of Ether they have. Ether is now a yielding asset through um, 
you know, staking and, you know, all of these are new things that have kind of, that, that's stuff that's new since the last bear market. And the, and the usage of Ether in that economy has grown substantially. On top of that, we're also seeing Ether use, be Ether be used as that store of value or medium of exchange asset on L2s, right? So if you look at like Frentech, right, the hot app, like all that, all that value is stored in ETH. So imagine a world where you've got like now with L2s, hundreds of thousands or millions of people using apps like that. And they're all using Ether as that money that they're storing in, right? That means they all have Ether in their wallet. That means that, and we call that kind of like reserve demand, right? They have, they're buying Ether to use it. And then all of a sudden people start realizing, hey, I want to store my value in ETH, right? They're going to, they're going to come to the point which I came to in like 2017, which is I want as much Ether as possible. I want to store value in it. I want to, I want to be able to hold it and use it in the future. And and so, yeah, I do see all of the types of funds that you mentioned getting incre increasing exposure to it. Interestingly enough, we just saw the Ether's future ETF be approved, and that's live for trading. Now, we're not seeing a ton of demand in a bear market. And to be clear, I don't think like futures-based ETFs are, are the future, right? Um, I think that we're going to get a Bitcoin spot PT ETF within the next, let's say, like three years. I think that's probably a conservative enough timeline. Maybe sooner if Gary Gensler is, is removed. But we're going to see a Bitcoin ETF. And pretty soon thereafter, I think you're going to see an Ethereum ETF. And I think you're seeing a lot of people understand that Ether is kind of this money-like asset. You've seen it in like the statements from Fidelity. And this is stuff that they're pushing out to their, to their investor clients. Um, you're seeing it with the stuff that Van Eck is putting out there as one of the issuers of these preeminent futures ETFs. Like, it's hard to ignore. It's interesting because, like, now TradFi, I saw someone made this great post. I don't remember who it was, but they said, you know, three years ago, all the, or four years ago, all the financial institutions were building stuff on private blockchains. And now they're all building on Ethereum. And so I think there's a recognition. And yeah, some of those are permissioned assets, but the point is they're all interoperable with this Ethereum and ETH layer. And so it's really difficult for me to ignore that. And like, if I'm right, I mean, I think Ether could be like a trillion dollar asset. So I have a question on that too, because yeah. like you're talking about usage and believing that the usage is going to continue to like ramp here. Is there any concerns with gas? Like that's always a thing. And you did mm -hmm. mention L2s, but of course with some of these L2s, like base is very cheap for that. And that's one of the few L2s that does not have their own token. I look at things like AVAX, which I'm bullish on. I look at things like FTM, which had its run last cycle as well. Yeah. And I definitely, I'm more of an altcoin person. Like I love the altcoins just because of the inherent risk reward that typically comes from them. I'm a huge Solana maxi, which is kind of plays into that usage side of things. But I am curious, like how is your viewpoint on the usage if it's going to be money because gas prices obviously spike, much like we yeah. saw with like other deed, for example, it was twenty five hundred dollars to send the transaction. So, and just to clarify, like in in the case of Avalanche and Phantom, um, I don't consider those L twos. I view them as other layer ones, which use okay. EVM. So, I mean, they, which is which is you know, there's some interoperability there, but they require yeah, using sure. a trusted bridge. Um, that being said, I think the layer twos. What's unique about them is that eventually they'll they'll be fully trustless. With Ethereum, okay, in mm -hmm. the sense of you're going to have very similar security guarantees on L2 as you would have on L1. We're not fully there yet, but there is a path to get there as these layer twos decide to decentralize and you know do all their fraud proofs and all of that and use layer one as a true security layer. So I think that like layer one, I'll be honest, long term, I don't think layer one gas prices will drop that low because there's always going to be a certain latent demand. 
for Ethereum layer one block space. I do think that they'll work on ways to increase that through sharding and things like that, but we're still years away from some of that. Um, so a lot of economic activity, I think, is going to move to layer twos. And on top of that, layer twos are going to introduce a lot of new economic activity that would never have been possible on layer one, right? And I think just using that Frentech example again, like you're seeing this like high velocity trading of shares. I mean, that app could have been on layer one, probably. It wouldn't have had the same UX necessarily. You would have had to pay a little bit more on trading fees, but it could I think have TVL worked. would have struggled as well. Like we saw massive TVL ramps, whereas like that bridge process was so seamless for it. But that like, this almost kind of mm -hmm. makes me lean more into like some of these theses for other L1s for like TVL that is ramping from the data standpoint that I continue to look at. It's just like a very interesting conversation to yeah. dive into because I don't think EVM and like the ETH L1 can sustain that high velocity number of transactions because it does cause issues to the consumer side and the user side. Well, I think what we're seeing is, I mean, so there, and there are some live examples of this, of apps that deploy on Ethereum L2s and then on other layer ones. And the ones that are right now on Ethereum layer two, I mean, they were the first, so it's not really a fair comparison, but they're doing better. I think it's really hard to beat the Ethereum like liquidity network effect, to be honest. Like, and there's a lot of people who have ETH and they want to make more ETH. And the best way to do that is an Ethereum L1 or L2. And so you could see that kind of effect um, develop in other ecosystems as well. But I think there's going to be, it's just a little bit more challenging. And, you know, those assets haven't necessarily proven themselves as money in the same way that Ether has. So I do agree with your point, though, that layer one Ethereum has like, it stopped a lot of runs, if you will, because of gas prices, right? Things were running up in value. And then it's like, okay, gas prices are too high. And so we're going to have to cut back and, and, and slow down because there's not enough network capacity. I, th I just think a lot of that stuff is going to shift to layer twos this time, to be perfectly honest. Uh, so on this matter, I actually am curious about this. So I think about it from like the development standpoint. And when you look at like historically prior to blockchain stuff, if, if you look at like database technology, if you look at uh, operating systems, like where you're looking at like Windows versus Macintosh or iPhone versus Android. A lot of what matters in terms of developer adoption is two things. One, users. So there needs mm -hmm. to be someone who's going to be willing to buy my software or interact with my software on the platform. And two, developer experience ends up being like the, the other component of it. And that's something that I spend a lot of time paying attention to, especially as a developer. I'm, I'm always looking at like, what's the friction for me to go and start operating within this particular ecosystem? Right. And so far, like you were saying, you know, a lot of the L2s, for example, I see people talking about L3s and then I'm just like, I'm out at that point because it, it's, it's, it's very challenging for me to see because I'm like, okay, well, so we didn't actually solve, like th this chain did not solve the problem. It started to, the promise of it is interesting because there's uh, a developer ecosystem that exists. There's a very strong developer ecosystem around EVM compatible chains and ease of deployment associated with that, which is why I can't like, I can't say that I don't think that like, it'd be crazy to say that Ethereum doesn't have a shot because there's so much development activity that takes place on Ethereum. But that's also why I look to a place like Solana, which previously, you know, a lot of uh, investors and what I would say is when I view investors, when I came into the NFT space, the investor voice was largely coming from uh, Ethereum people mm -hmm. who, uh, wh where they taught, where they're more traditional uh, finance uh, individuals who are saying like, 
hey, I have, a, a, you know, I have experience investing and they can talk about asset allocation and some of these, uh, like there are more mature investors from that standpoint, but they're not necessarily building on top of that platform. And this is such a unique ecosystem environment where like it's mm -hmm. not the platform that's driving adoption. It's the, it's the people within the ecosystem that are driving the narratives and uh, largely where you see, like if you look at Twitter, from people who are buying the stuff that are mm -hmm. actually driving that narrative versus the developer conferences that, that are pushing uh, that sort of conversation where like you look at Apple and Microsoft and Google, it literally are de developer conferences where they roll out new features. They talk about the future of the platform. They talk about why you need to be building in that ecosystem. And, mm -hmm. and so that's the one thing which I wonder is like all the gaming app developers they're like struggling to figure out where to operate. Like I, I, right. I talk with them and they, and I see them moving from chain to chain to chain to chain. And it's really like, where are they going to land? And that's why I keep coming back to a place like Solana, which previously was something I didn't even consider because of some of the narratives going against it. But now I just see like the ease of use of development for a lot of people that are operating there. And they don't need to think about L2, L3, any of these other different things. And I just think, well, now they can just go focus on building apps that have a quality user experience and they're light years ahead. You look at uh, Stepin and some of these other places, uh, other products that have millions of uh, people on it. The only comparable at this point is Frentech, which is on base. So now I'm looking at base versus Solana as it applies to developers. How does that factor in? I, it was a long-winded way of saying, mm -hmm. how does the developer experience in your mind factor into your bet as you're thinking about where is this adoption going to take place? Because for me, it's really significant. Sure. I think, I mean, you bring up good points. My, my point of view is there's no chain which has actually fully solved the scaling issue, right? Not Ethereum, not Ethereum L2s, and not Solana. Um, because at a certain, there, at, at certain low prices for block space, there can be near infinite demand for it, right? If Ethereum transactions were free, there would be infinite demand. I mean, not infinite, not, they're like near infinite demand, right? You would settle all credit card transactions on Ethereum. Yeah. You would just, so there's always that next marginal class of transaction that's ready for a certain type of block space and they're going to be priced out, right? That is where the line is drawn and that is where things get priced out. I think the reality for Ethereum is um, it's probably more of, of, of a financial asset chain and like 2016 era Ethereum people will probably hate me for saying that because I think they had aspirations that it might be some kind of other chain was this like global source of truth. And I think it still is and could be, but it really has a value proposition in that financial space because it has that liquid ecosystem and so on. When you talk about developer experience on top of that, I think the interesting thing that a lot of people maybe haven't internalized around Ethereum L2s is we're moving to a world where you can use pretty much any execution environment on an Ethereum L2, which means that app developers can write programs in the language that they're comfortable with, right? And so there's actually a L2, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it's like deploying, running the Solana EVM on Ethereum, right? So it's going to have eventually that trustless bridge from Ethereum L1 to L2. Um, is that going to have the same demand as Solana layer one? I'm not hundred percent sure yet. Right. But I think I'm just going to tell you what I think the pros are for a model like that. One, it's going to be able to tap natively into the value of ether 
which I think is actually like, and I know people are like, oh, you keep talking about Ether, but it's like, yeah, that's the value proposition for me, right? That's why you would use a layer two, because you want to interoperate with Ethereum layer one assets, including Ether, right? I think Ether is this like pretty special asset in terms of it's the most like trustless programmable asset we're ever going to have, right? And when I say that, I'm, I, I say that recognizing that it is a network that regularly upgrades, right? It's a network that regularly does hard forks. But I've also seen how social consensus constrains the ability of developers to do malicious things to users. And I think there's a very strong point of view and consensus that Ether is an asset which should, which its value should be preserved and bolstered over time. It should not be diminished. And I think that's going to paint how development happens. So then we go back to, okay, so what's the comparative value proposition for building on something like Solana Layer 1 versus a Layer 2 where you're getting a lot of that similar development experience, right? Um, will the transactions be as cheap as Solana Layer 1? I'm not sure yet. Um, and Solana transactions are like, there are people who complain. I mean, I saw someone was joking about this on Twitter saying like, oh, people who complain about Solana fees are, for, are poor. But there's always that marginal next person that's like, I don't want to pay 25 cents to do this because in order to stake my NFT, because it should be free. And to those people, I say like public blockchains are never going to be free. Okay. Do we have all kinds of other systems which appear to be free or are for all intents and purposes free public blockchains where data is recorded kind of like forever are not where you're going to do that. Like, I don't believe in the premise that like your coffee buy this morning, you know, you went to Starbucks that needs to be on the blockchain. Right. I think that, but I, but I am of the camp that like, Hey, this autoglyph or whatever valuable NFT that I bought, and it doesn't have to be that valuable. Right. I want that recorded on this chain forever. And I don't want anybody to be able to mess with that. So I think there's, there's arguments for and against. Yeah. I mean, look, it's fascinating stuff to see. <clears throat> Excuse me. You talked about some L2s. You talked about friend tech being built on base. I'm curious, uh, what do you think of Polygon? Because we've seen a lot of big deals, like good business development from Polygon. And on our side, we're seeing a lot of gaming companies uh, have interest yeah. in Polygon. And I do I do believe in the video game thing for crypto and for NFTs. Uh, I don't know if it's going to happen in the next month that everybody's going to be gaming uh, with blockchain involved. But I do believe that over the next six years, it will be. And it does seem like Polygon is sucking up a lot of that uh, interest from the gaming developers. What do you make of Polygon? I think Polygon is a really exciting kind of it's it's become you know now they have their their true layer 2 solution so I think they're a really exciting company working on a lot of exciting things and I own a decent amount of of Matic or whatever I think it's still called Matic I've I've just got it <laughs> sitting in my wallet <laughs> but I own a decent amount of it kind of bought during the depths of the bear market it's like okay, I'm just going to hold on to this we're going to see kind of what happens over time with this but I think look in that case, they're a great team who are executing really well. And there's a lot of great teams in the Ethereum L2 space who are executing really well. Just to name a few of them, it's like Matic. You've got the Immutable X team who's building Starkware and other solutions. You've got Arbitrum. You've got Optimism. These are all teams in ZK Sync. These are all teams who are working to scale Ethereum. And each one of them has their own kind of pros and cons to the solutions they're pushing. But I think that's what's exciting about this to me is like, there's like for a long time, Ethereum development was constrained to here's what the core developers think the future should look like. And it still is that, right? I mean, on layer one, it still kind of looks like that. And it's obviously not just core developers, just the community and a lot of other people involved with that. 
But now you're seeing like what what is the free market basically iterate on these L2s. And I think, look, I'm kind of like a market capitalist um, until AI replaces all of us. So I'm 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 in the I'm in the point of view that like the free market is going to develop and generate the best innovation, much better than any centrally planned like technical architecture can. Right. The fact that all these layer twos can settle on Ethereum L1 and use that as that universal source of truth, if you will. Right. But they can explore their own technical architectures to their heart's content. That is so exciting to me. Um, I mean, it's so exciting to see like even base be as successful as it as it has been. And I've long posited like, hey, if, if one of these exchanges like just develops an L2, it's going to take off because the bridging is going to be really easy. They're going to have a lot of the infrastructure needed to make it work. They're going to get the partnerships, which I think the partnerships, I mean, that was kind of a meme in 2017, but it's kind of more meaningful now in general, which is why I'm bullish on Polygon because they've got a great business development team and they're just crushing it. I mean, they're, and like, have those translate to a lot of really useful apps on chain? I would say probably not just yet, but during like a more bullish period where people are coming back and are using this stuff, I think it could take off. Yeah, that business development skill set is incredibly valuable. Um, look, on the NFT front, when we had Raul Paul of Real Vision, you know, former Goldman guy, Raul Paul, big time like macro and, and crypto content creator, he mentioned that he views uh, crypto and NFT similarly to how he views the stock market and real estate, meaning like the liquid market, the stock market uh, corrected in 2022. Now we're seeing real estate sort of pull back. Uh, he views it as crypto corrected in 2022 you know, NFTs pulled back this year. So he thinks that there's like a one-year lag, right? And so if crypto pumps in 2024, then NFTs will have their pump in 2025. That actually kind of lines up with the 2020 versus 2021 or 2021 versus 2022 pump on crypto and NFTs. Do you think it's that simple? Is it that simple that the liquid asset pumps and then a year later, the illiquid asset pumps? I think that it's, I wouldn't necessarily view it as that's the driver, but I think you could, I think the view could still be accurate regardless because I think crypto is a risk asset, right? There's no question about that. And it was doing better under a higher interest rate environment. That said, I don't think it's totally dependent on a high interest rate environment to be successful. I think it's dependent on a speculative environment where people want to speculate. And that's also, that's, that tends to be more aligned with lower interest rate environments, but it's not exclusive to that, right? If people want to gamble or whatever they want to use public blockchains for, they're going to do it. People gamble through recessions and so on. So I think if crypto hits like a speculative fervor and people pile back into it for whatever reason, it's going to do well. In terms of their relationship with NFTs, and I wrote a post on this a while ago um, for my uh, my fellow like NFT art lovers, right? Because everybody's like, what are the institutions going to buy? And what is these famous art collectors going to buy? And they're not going to buy your whatever that you think is important. And I'm like, look, guys, you're overcomplicating. The next like marginal buyer of an NFT is most likely to be some like semi-tech bro who's like really into the technology, has really has probably made some wealth through crypto. And they're looking to buy assets in that ecosystem. Okay. That is still the next marginal buyer of like almost every NFT in my point of view. And we can talk about expanding to like all these other segments. And I think that's important too, right? But I think like how many like people who have zero crypto exposure are going to go in and buy a crypto punk for like a hundred thousand dollars tomorrow? Yeah, we how don't many? skip. Not a lot. Not a lot. We don't <laughs> skip right to the 80-year-old person that's going in person to Sotheby's and buying a Picasso. You don't just skip to that, you know, right after right. the crypto degen, right? 
Right, exactly. And I think so. So I still view. So in that sense, I think it is somewhat cyclical in the sense of when crypto kind of goes back up, when the speculation machine kicks back in there, it is then going to trickle into NFTs because I know that there's a lot of people out there who are like, man, if I just made a little bit more of this cycle, I would have bought X NFT and they're going to buy it. A lot of them actually bought during the bear market. So I actually think this distribution that we've seen in art, especially, we're basically selling out of the hands of speculators. And this is a little like, not to be too shy and fraud here, but I mean, like when I look at like people who are bought an NFT and are selling it for like 50% or 25% of what they bought it for. Right. And this is like what I consider to be pretty great NFT art. Like that's how I know we're like close to the bottom. And I I, I like buying those because it's like this person is clearly they didn't want to get out. They need the liquidity. And it's like, okay, I'm willing to buy this. I'm willing to hold on to it. And so I think that there's a lot of opportunity that is emerging now, even though it might not go up tomorrow. Like if you have like a, a look, I've been pretty transparent about my NFT strategy. Like this is like a 10 or 20 year play for me. Right. I'll probably sell like maybe five to 10% of my collection during the next cycle, but I'm not trying to like paper hand this stuff. Cause I think like my view is on 20 year time frame, this is going to be worth a lot. more. Yeah, I could totally see it. I'm glad you brought up interest rates. I wanted to make sure that we talked about that when Raul Paul to reference him again, came on the show, he actually made an aggressive prediction. He predicts, predicted a rate cut before the end of the year. I don't know how realistic mm -hmm. that is, but hypothetically, let's say we go to 7%. Let's say that, you know, we stay in a high interest rate environment over the next year. Um, how does that affect the ne the next cycle, right? Because we haven't seen a cycle, you know, we haven't seen a Bitcoin having in an environment like that. W will it make things in your mind look totally different? I think it'll affect things a little bit. Um, here's why. I think one, who's who are the people that kind of start the crypto cycles? And I don't mean that it's necessarily engineered, although it could be for all I know, who knows, right? But I mean, like when we say like someone's buying the bottom, Right. And they're putting in a bottom and then they're steadily accumulating. And that's what starts like a speculative interest, like ramp up. That's how markets work. And I don't think that's people will say the market is rigged or whatever. But I mean, like, that's just human behavior. Right. If they see something's going up in price, they want to buy it. Is that so, Michael Saylor last time? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think it was Michael Saylor. I don't think he was buying the bottom because I think when did he really start buying? I feel like he started buying like after it had already kind of gone up a fair amount. Right around um, like March, April, May, you know, post having, you know, seven, eight, ten thousand dollar Bitcoin. Yeah. So, I mean, he kept you buying, say he was a, yeah, he was a participant in that perhaps, but I don't know that it was like, and that's the thing. It's so hard to say. It's just like one person putting that bottom in. But eventually crypto will hit that bottom. And and from here, I mean like a local bottom, probably not a new low, probably, fingers crossed. Um, but but if it puts in that near-term bottom and then people continue to pile in, the prices continue to go up, that drives more interest to get into the market. So who is doing that? Is that primarily like your really wealthy person who's like, hmm, interest rates are 7%. And so I, that's a pretty good return. And that's going to be hard for me to beat. So you know what? I'm not going to buy the Bitcoin or Ether or whatever. I'm just going to keep it in, in my savings account. Or is it the person who's like, hey, you know what? Like 7% is great, but inflation is still high and groceries are like 50% more than they were four years ago. And I want to make some money. And are they going to, are those the people who are putting in that bottom this time and are like doing it? I don't know. I mean, like, I do think in general, higher interest rate environment is a headwind for crypto, not a tailwind. Um, until, until, until such time that it, like the financial system actually breaks. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not rooting for that, 
by any means, but like it's it's one of the reasons why I own crypto because I don't really know if our political administrators of our money supply are that responsible. You know what I mean? And it's like, I do view crypto as a hedge. And I think there are people in other countries, especially outside the United States and, and in the less developed world who really do use it as a hedge. And that's, and it's really valuable that it exists for those people. So I don't know, man, I don't have like an easy answer on what's going to happen, but it, but it, will interest rates go down over the next year? I think probably, you know, they could just be, even if they stop like, raising and they signal like we're done, you know, and I think they're probably close to being done. I mean, they've already gone a little higher than I thought they would, but there's not really much argument to keep raising at this point because the rate of inflation has slowed significantly, even though, I mean, like, and this is the fucked up part, like we're all saying like, oh, inflation's getting back in control, but prices are still a lot higher than a few years ago. You oh. talk to anybody who's living on a paycheck, they can tell you that, you know, or buys groceries. I mean, like, it's like, I mean, like if you're a family going to a grocery store now, you're spending like $300 every time you go. It's just like unbelievable. And and that's a huge um, difficulty. So anyway, my point is like, I don't know that there's an argument to keep raising. So if they signal that they're going to at least going to stop raising, then it brings in the possibility of, hey, they're going to start lowering. And that can be enough to, I think, to start to shift the market. Amazing detail. Nick, do you have a, a follow-up question on that? No, I just wanted to say I'm a big fan of the U.S. political landscape. Personally, I think that the system is working just as we expected. Um, no, did uh, uh, welcome. Thank you, thank you, uh, thank you, thank you. And I, let may I just say this, Nick? Uh, out of everyone I, I'm seeing here on the show since it's been a while. You're looking quite thick. Like <laughs> uh, you must have been lifting, uh, and you look everyone like says it's me lifting, and no, it's just me eating improperly and I'm getting, <laughs> I can't, I, 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 sorry i can't hear nick so i'm not his screen is black on mine oh really really oh i can still hear him so uh -oh. must be a bug okay sorry <laughs> very strange uh okay well we'll translate for nick if nick has a question he'll rejoin all node was saying uh dc is that nick is looking thick he must be lifting and nick corrected him and just said that he was just gaining bad weight i i mean i'm interpreting what you said <laughs> nick that's basically the message of the joke right hey well let's roll with the let's roll with the getting more cut i like that so okay i, I got a question for dc though so i I, I think one of my like big challenges is well one I'm I'm out of out of uh, out of ETH so I'm always having to try and decide like do I what do I how do I view new art versus what's already there right like all our favorite art blocks collections that we hold uh, how do you view looking at buying maybe a future art blocks drop versus saying I'm just going to keep buying what I'm viewing is historical, which was, I mean, literally only a couple years ago, but still feels like it's sort of being canonized into the art blocks, you know, like lexicon. So I think right now, like a lot of the old stuff is on unreasonable sale. It's like really like people because, and part of it is because I think a lot of participants in crypto just skew towards what's the next hot thing. And the question is, what are people, for me, the question is, what will people care about in like five to 10 years or 20 years? And how are they going to view the game at that point? And maybe it, it shifts a little bit from like, okay, maybe we don't just focus on the newest, hottest thing, and focus on some of this older stuff. I mean, look, my point of view on what I choose to collect, and this is much to the consternation of like a lot of the art curators who are in my feed who are like, why is your stuff going up? And it's just like, I think that NFT artists 
qualitatively different from like other art movements in the sense of this is something that's live. It's on the internet. The personality of the creator matters. Their presence in the community matters. It's not just purely like something that's being set in a back room with a few people. It's being all set and deliberated live, like on the internet. And that is something that makes and digital art in general different, but it makes NFTs different um, on top of that. So I think that a lot of the stuff that's older is has the potential to age well if it's from an artist who has done really great stuff, continues to do great stuff, is engaged with the community, and they're inspiring other artists and community members. And that is something – so it's it's not – I don't want to think of it as like a utility token, but I think the presence of that artist matters to some, and there's going to be some stuff where it doesn't, right? Like, I mean, Larva Labs could totally disappear and CryptoPunks and Autoglyphs are probably still going to be worth a lot because they were so pioneering, right? But we're kind of past that phase where like that level of pioneering is going to like occur on a daily basis. I'm not going to say it could never occur. I mean, I think there's some artists like Def Beef who just do some like crazy technical stuff and like are definitely worth watching. But if I can buy like an artist's earlier work for like less than their newer work and it's like a smaller collection size and it's still loved, but it's just not in vogue like today <laughs> or this week, I'm going to buy that a lot of the time personally, right? So if I see an artist do a really successful second or third drop, I that's when sometimes I'll go back and buy their first or or or, or their second, if there's their third or their fourth, right? And because if it's like, I just view it, it potentially as a better value because it's already proven itself. It's already potentially influenced more people, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So conversely, do you, would you consider selling some art if you, if say like the artist uh, became less and less engaged uh, or maybe you started doing things that you weren't overly pleased with. I mean, Matt Cain's an interesting example uh, recently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people, they're, they're calling it performance art with what he did with the uh, super rare pass, which I think is really fascinating. Uh, but, you know, some people aren't happy with it. Some people are. Uh, let's let's just say for as an example, let's pretend like you weren't happy with this and you own a bunch of gazers. What would you would you do anything at all? I don't know that because I, I, I don't know all the details of what he did. I saw some like scuttlebutt about it. So I don't want to talk about gazers specifically within this context. But I'll say in a more general perspective, if an artist started doing things that I really like fundamentally disagreed with, yeah, I might feel compelled to want to sell some of their work because it's kind of like if I own a lot of work by an artist and then all of a sudden they just go around torching their reputation, they torch their legacy for the space, right? Like I want, I'm looking for those artists who are thinking about like leaving a legacy on the order of like 50 or hundred years, people who like want to communicate with the future through their art. Like, and there are, there are a lot of great artists who, who, who have that mindset and you can kind of tell who they are, you know? I mean, like, it's not, it shouldn't be a surprise. So like, it's very rare that I buy something from someone who doesn't fall into that camp, to be honest. And, but yeah, if they start doing a lot of things that are really negative and harmful, I'm, I might not be as excited about it, right? That said, there are some artists who eventually transcend to a point where it almost doesn't matter like what, what bad they might have done. They just did something that was so impactful and has influenced so many people that the value is probably not going to go down as a result of it. It's just like is what it is. But in general, I'm like... I stick to that thesis pretty strongly, which is like, I'm, I'm buying work from artists who are 
who are going to be viewed as pioneers of the space. And that's not by people like me. It's by other artists primarily. And so I overweight my exposure to those people. And I think, yeah, I, oh, go ahead. No, go go ahead. ahead. Uh, I was going to follow up with, uh, I think uh, you're a great example of someone that actually, you know, takes their time before they, they purchase something, which uh, I think all of us could learn from just a little bit. But I've noticed uh, recently you bought uh, Primera, Grant Yun, and mm-hmm. I think it's Andrew Mitchell's uh, generative set. It, and in, in my mind, I was thinking, yeah, I own, I own a, an edition of, of, or a couple of different editions of Grant Yun, and, yeah. uh, which I think are awesome. And I'm guessing you probably uh, watched him for a while, liked his work, and then thought, hey, let's go back to some early interesting generative works. What was your thought process behind buying, uh, sweeping that collection? So I think that, you know, both those guys are really interesting creators. And obviously Grant has um, really been successful in kind of what he does. And the guy is just, I, and I've been interact with interacting with him on Twitter long before I purchased his work and have been kind of watching his moves. But the guy is like a wonderkind. He's just like so talented in like everything he does. It's kind of. It's unfair. Yeah. It's like ridiculous. He's like a medical doctor. I think he's in his residency now. He's an artist. He's a break dancer. Like he just does so much stuff that is mind blowing. He does it all really well. And so I, I really admire people like that who are, who can do that. Um, I think his art style is absolutely um, fascinating and it really kind of pulls you in while also being like super accessible. Um, and I think that's kind of like a hallmark of his style and granted he's been influenced by other artists like every artist has, but I think he, he's brought a special take to, to that. And with the stuff he chooses to render um, and how he does it, it's just been every work that I've ever seen him put out is super compelling to me. Um, and so Primera, I remember when it first came out and at that point, Grant was kind of like, he wasn't like that well known in the space, but he was, it was like an interesting drop. It's like, okay. And this was a couple of years ago, fast forward to now where he's a pretty acclaimed artist. And I was like, you know what? I would like to have some works by Grant. Now, part of this also is like, what's the stuff that I like to collect. Right. And I would love to, I mean, like, look, if someone gave me a Grant Yoon one of one tomorrow, I would say no. You know, I'd be like, okay, I'll take it. But that's not really like a lot of what I collect at this point. I collect generative art and that's just like the stuff that I love and really pulls at my heartstrings. And so I was like, I want to own some work by Grant. And then I went back and started looking into Primera. I'm like, you know what? This is like a really interesting set. Some of the things that they tried to do with that in terms of like having like different perspectives from which you could view it. And also interesting to me was Grant is not primarily and I thought that was like an interesting, so like in history, when we go back and look at this in like 20 years from now, if Grant is still a really successful artist, I think this set is going to be viewed as like this interesting curiosity, maybe even more prized than some of his editions and so on, because it's like, so, but he's a huge fan of generative art. So if you hear, you yeah. see what he says online, he talks about generative art all the time. He actually like really appreciates it. And who knows, maybe he'll become a really big generative artist one day. Maybe he's going to be like, hey, I'm going to start coding. And he'll probably be really good at it too. <laughs> Would not surprise so, me. So for me, I was like, that was, uh, I hope that adds a little bit of color to the story of why I chose to buy that. But mostly I just, you know, I think, I think both those guys are doing really great work. And I think Grant is obviously, he's almost in a class by himself at this point. 
Yeah. And, and what you said there, DC, it reminds me of like if a musician did one album in a different genre, right? That's kind of like uh, similar to Grant Young doing one collection that's a generative art collection. I'm actually glad you brought this up because it's well known. And, and maybe some people in the audience don't know you're a big generative art guy, like you said, uh, collections like Meridians, Squiggles, Fidenzas, uh, to name a few. I was going to ask, how do you feel about the Grant Youngs of the world, Sam Spratt, Beeple? Uh, I guess Ferocious just did a, a profile picture collection. So that's in the direction of generative art. But I was wondering, you know, those some of those other names like Sam Spratt and Beeple that the market has really favored um, Sam Spratt this year, Beeple over the past three years. How do you feel about those artists? I think they've, you know, I think they're really interesting and compelling. And I'll speak to Beeple for a second because I think that he's a lot, he got a lot of flack back in the day when he sold um, that NFT for like $69 million, the yep. mean value. And, and then he, he, he like basically sold all of the ether like immediately. This is when ETH was like a thousand dollars. He sold it for cash. And I was like, kind of like, look guys, it's his money. He can do what he wants with it. I think it would have been better if he kept some of it, you know, in hindsight. Um, but you know, and I was like, yeah, it would have been a nice nod towards the blockchain and all of that, but it's his money and he can decide what he's done with it. Fast forward a few years later and people has done a lot for NFTs, like in general. Right. I mean, he wasn't someone who just extracted the value and then fucked off. He actually has brought a lot of attention to NFTs, continues to bring that attention. He tells the stories of a lot of what happens in our space through his artwork, which he puts out on a daily basis. And there's just so much value in someone who you can tell he's someone who values like this digital culture. And there's always going to be the cynic out there who's like, oh, he's just doing it for the money and attention. But like, yeah, but he's doing it. And he's, he's telling the stories that no one else is telling and they're, and he's going to be a part of the crypto story for a long time. And maybe, may, and I'm not, I, to be honest, like I don't track as much of the stuff that Sam is doing. Cause again, I'm kind of like a single play guy when it comes to like collecting NFTs, but he seems to be doing some really innovative stuff with like, you know, some of the participation and like the DAOs and stuff like that, that his artwork is like now a part of basically. And so I think those types of people who are advancing the culture and advancing the spirit of um, experimentation, it's awesome. I mean, like, and I, even though I, even if I don't own a lot of their work, I, you know, I'm here for it. I'm here for the people who are here. For it. And if there, if someone is excited by that stuff, that's great. I do own some people works. I own like one of the bull runs. I mean, I did have, I had the mind to understand that some of those things back then were going to be significant, like just because people was early enough, but I've been really encouraged by how he's been involved. And I mean, for all the cynics who are out there, it's just like, look, what have you done that people hasn't, you know, and <laughs> a lot of people haven't done more than he's done. Yeah. I think people are just mad about how much money he made. Honestly, the $69 million sale, I had a, a normie friend, an IRL friend say that the, that $69 million piece wouldn't sell for a million dollars today. And I immediately said, then you're not aware of like the $500,000 Fidenza sales that we see every three weeks or the, you know, the crypto punk sales that come through. Um, DC, you know, I know you said you're already allocated, but do you have any temptation to just like sweep the crypto punks floor considering, you know, you think we're at the end of the bear market? Like that's the part that I want to understand is like, what stops you from just deploying capital yeah. into a collection like crypto punks right now? I mean, yeah, I could get, I could be even more irresponsibly long for sure. Um, but I, I, I try to keep balance in all things and I've gotten more and more irresponsibly long as this bear market has dragged on. And yeah, I do sometimes have the urge to be like, you know what, I'm just going to take what I've got in my bank account and just buy a ton of punks, buy a ton of crummy squiggles and just go. 
you know, I mean, like, and, and I still reserve the right to do that, I guess. But um, I, I think, look, there is some sense of financial responsibility in, in my bones where I've got to take care of myself. I've got to take care of my family. And, you know, I, I realize I, I, I want to do that sometimes, but then I look at like, I've already got, I, I'm blessed, right? I've got a lot of great assets. I'm like, do I really need more exposure to this? But that's the interesting thing about NFTs. They kind of pull at you in a way that other assets, digital assets necessarily don't. And you kind of want to keep collecting them, you know? Like I know so many people who started with one punk, one squiggle, and they just couldn't stop. I mean, that's how I started. I started with one punk and then I kept, I was like a joke in the punk discord for like a couple of weeks. I kept coming back to buy more. Um, so yeah, do I believe that they're going to do really well? Sure. But I think there's also a point at which, you know what? Enough is enough. And I think maybe that's a broader point for everybody to consider, no matter what level you're operating at. Like at some point you can have too much exposure to the point where you have so much exposure that you end up fumbling things when you shouldn't have. Like there, there's definitely a case out there. There are definitely people out there who invested a hundred percent and underperformed someone who invested 20% of their net worths, even if they equaled out to like the same amount or, or roughly the same, you know, you, you get what I'm saying there. I mean, because the person who's at a hundred percent is much more likely to panic sell yeah. when things go down a little bit. And the person who's at 20% is like, you know what? I can afford to put in another 5%. I'm going to buy a little bit more, or at least I don't need to sell what I have. You know what I mean? So I want to always be that person on the right-hand side of that. Yeah, not the guy that's up all night, you know, worrying about the prices. <laughs> um, DC, we talked a lot about art, and obviously you're a big art guy. We talked a lot about crypto. You're a big Ethereum guy. You mentioned the sort of... Uh, you know, maybe call it like startup component. Like the, a lot of people call it the PFP component. I like to think of it as the startup component. And I think Yuga Labs is without question the biggest name in that vertical. Um, and uh, at this point, you know, we're about two years in or two and a half years into the Yuga run. Uh, it's venture funded at this point. They're building a video game enterprise. What do you think of of Yuga Labs? I'd be really curious because there is a lot to unpack there, in my opinion, between the board apes, the mutant apes and all these video game entities and the assets that come with those and the ape coin token. Do you pay any attention to them? And and if you do, what do you make of everything that's kind of developed with Yuga Labs? Well, as you said, most of my focus is on the art space. I don't, what I don't like a lot of is a lot of like dependencies on others for like future value accrual of my digital assets. So I view like Yuga as like a business, right? And they've been a pretty successful business in the sense, I mean, I can't say they're successful like profit and loss. I don't know what their numbers are, but they've been successful in terms of building out their IP and they've been built out this network of, of users and owners of their assets who are excited about them. And obviously everything's taken a hit in the bear market. So I'm going to give them a little bit of a pass for that. I think one, um, so I think the royalty model, and I, I'm surely not the first to talk about this, but the royalty model has really hurt company like these PFP teams significantly in the sense of like, and for those who aren't familiar, like there's now zero fee marketplaces or low fee marketplaces, which have basically cut royalties completely. Right. And so that was a huge source of income for these teams. And now that that's gone, they have to kind of create that income in other places. Okay. And so I, for me, it is always a question of like long-term alignment. Right. And I think like, I like the long-term alignment of art NFTs because an artist who owns their own work or even just cares about their legacy, they have an incentive to keep doing great stuff. And that will naturally, I think, increase the desirability of their work and thus the value of it. 
in order for the value of these PFP collections and game assets to appreciate, someone has to actively like develop and do something and has to make that money to keep that cycle going. So what I've seen from a lot of these PFP collections is they become vehicles to continue to extract money from their holder base in other ways. And I think as long as the dynamic is there versus bringing in new participants, which again is really tough in a bear market, um, it's just not something that I'm like super excited about. That said, like the market says that I'm wrong on that. Like, I mean, I don't want to say that I'm like bearish on this thing necessarily, but it's just not, it's not like what gets me up and going in the morning. That said, I think like gaming is going to be huge. Okay. I think NFT gaming will be huge, but I think we have to also view it as the first iterations of it are going to look more like gambling than like gaming. Right. And I think that's so I think like Yuga is undergoing some changes from what I can tell. They're almost becoming like a gaming company. It feels like I mean, like, again, I'm not monitoring like all of this day to day, but that's different from the starting point where they started with these board ape tokens, which became kind of like these status symbols and club tokens. So what does that look like over time? I honestly don't know. Do you do any like angel investing? And if so, what, what sort of companies are you most interested in? I do a little bit. Honestly, I've been doing less these days because it's so, I mean, look, it's so, in last cycle, I did a lot more and there's some stuff that just went straight to zero, right? Like, it's just like, they tried to make an app and it, but it seemed to be from creators who I thought were great. And it's just like, so I'm almost like, I don't know that I have an edge in those markets. There's also some where I got lucky. Like, you know, I was, I'm like a tiny seed investor in art blocks. I don't know if that'll ever be actually worth in anything, but like, but I was happy to support them. Right. I was like, yeah, you know, go for it. So, so for me, some of the stuff that I've invested in are more like some of the layer two plays. So I'm, I'm, you know, excited about a, a lot of layer twos, but I'm invested in Starkware. I'm invested in ZK Sync. Um, you know, but I feel like there's so many opportunities on the public market and there's a better risk profile there that I almost prefer now to invest more in the public markets, the markets that everyone has access to. Because if you have like, and I don't even say that I have like a true information asymmetry, I'm just out there trying to piece together like pieces of the puzzle. I have no insider information on any of this stuff, right? I mean, like that's that's not what I'm talking about. I just mean like if you're out there and you're paying attention, you can create an edge for yourself. And I think a lot of people underestimate, I mean, some people do rightfully underestimate their ability to do that. But if you're really focused and you're being smart about it, you can outperform a lot of VCs and angel investors. I mean, a lot of the VCs, like if they're making money, it's because they had these preferential token deals where they got huge token allocations and they can basically just, they made money like on the buy, right? They made money because the team wanted them on the pitch deck or whatever. I don't know if that environment exists anymore, to be honest, like post SBF. I think that like, that said, I do think now is that like, now actually is a good time to angel invest because the valuations are a lot more reasonable. Um, so if you're an angel investor, it's a lot more reasonable. But I, I, I again, sometimes I feel like I don't really have an edge there. So I prefer to just say, public yeah i mean the they say vcs are the dgens uh you know of that of that industry so nick you had a follow-up yeah what's your top stock pick right now <laughs> oh man <laughs> i i don't think i'm um educated enough on current dynamics to really say that so i'm gonna abstain from that i think the stock market in general look it's it's gonna go up or down right that's what i'm about to that's the summarize what i'm about to say but you could argue it's too richly valued for what it is and these ai stocks are pumped to all hell like and i'm really bullish on ai as a technology i'm not that bullish on a lot of these stocks but yeah either the s p 500 has turned and we're like 
racing to some much lower point, or we're just going to kind of stall out at some point and we're just going to be like, okay, we already had our flush back in, when was that? October, 2022. Same thing in crypto, right? But we've already had our flush back then and it's not going to be that bad. So I will say like, I'm bullish on stocks for the long term, And a lot of crypto people are like, Famously, like, I don't know any stocks. I'm not going to. And I don't have a lot of stocks right now because I'm allocated. Like, in a bear market, I'm like, I'd rather be more allocated to crypto. And again, we've already talked about how I can afford to take some bigger risks at this point in my life. So I'm willing to do that. Because um, even if I lose like 80%, I won't be as ruined as I would have been like 10 years ago had I did put 80% in. You get what I'm saying? So I think that people should own stocks, though, because in a world where AI becomes much more important, the owners of capital, I think, are going to be disproportionately rewarded. And I think most people should just buy an S&P 500 fund, if I'm honest. Yeah, I mean, that's a totally fair take. Uh, I'm actually glad we brought up stocks. My last question was going to be, do you have exposure to crypto stocks like you know Coinbase or Bitcoin mining companies, any stocks like that? I do own some Coinbase. And um, I think they're, I don't know that it will outperform my crypto holdings, but I think they're on the right track. I'm really bullish on Coinbase because I don't know what happened, but like during the last bull market, it seemed like they were flailing, just throwing money at a lot of like random things. And maybe it was just, they're making a lot of money and they became undisciplined and they were trying to keep up with demand, but things seem to have like really changed there where they seem really focused on creating value for users to actually meeting like real customer needs. Um, so I'm bullish on, I, they seem to have turned around their management significantly. And I don't know, I, you know, I, I find it interesting as like a ex consultant who used to do like organizational design work. Like I'd love to go in there and like do a case study on like what happened, what's changed. But in the absence of that, I like Coinbase overall. I also own like some of like the grayscale trusts for like Ethereum, which I don't necessarily recommend, but like my point of view on it is look, it gives you some kind of exposure to Ether and it's, Ether will get a spot ETF at some point, at which point that product will convert and it's trading at a discount right now. So I'm, I'm happy to just hold on to that and just let it go. You're rocking with Barry Silbert, DC. That's a, that's a risky I'm not, one. I'm not, I'm not a huge fan. I, look, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of Barry at all. If you look back at my Twitter, like I've been super critical of Barry, but I think the reality is like as a trust product, it does give you, if you buy it when the discount is low, like your risk is like somewhat capped right? Versus, because the asset is still there, right? It's not like, it's not like it doesn't exist, but as soon as right. it converts to a spot ETF, I'll sell it. Or like, <laughs> <laughs> I plan to sell it in like yeah. a, a bull market. I mean, I have most of it in like tax advantaged accounts and stuff like that, where I'm not paying taxes every time I sell. So, nice. you know, that's, that's kind of, that's why I own it. I sold my Bitcoin version of that just because it kept it. Bitcoin the, the goes up and the price at, of the thing goes down. Yeah. I, was, I was like, what the hell is going on with this thing? I'll just buy Bitcoin. But I think I opened up, you know, uh, there's the uh, like backdoor Roth sort of thing mm -hmm. that you can do. And I, and I got one of those one year, put all of it just into that one account. I was like, all right, this account is just going to that. Uh, and I immediately went down 50%. And I was like, what, what the hell is going on? I'm like, Bitcoin didn't even drop that much. What, like, what is this? This, and then I just got pissed off and I think rage, rage quit. The <laughs> so this is why I don't recommend the product to most people. Cause they're like, how can I buy Bitcoin in my IRA? And now at least they are the future space products, which I own some of that kind of stuff too. 
but I don't love those products because one, they're not, they don't create any underlying demand for the underlying asset. Really. It's kind of like a parallel universe and we can go, we won't go dive too deep into that, but it's not, I would prefer to buy the trust, which you could argue might have some impact on demand down the line. But two, mostly I just think like on a long enough time frame, they're undervalued. If there's a big discount, right? Cause on a long enough time frame, these things do convert. They'll be forced to convert. I mean, uh, the SEC seems to move real quick over here. Uh, so, uh, and, and they're they're focused on the right things right now. So I'm pretty I'm I'm actually at this point, uh, the more the longer that I'm in crypto, I'm like just end the SEC. It's the dumbest fucking system ever. And then I'm like, well, I guess you do want like I do appreciate that stocks have the public reporting requirements because I do like looking at balance sheets and uh income statements. Uh but the, the like as it applies to and that's something that you don't get with like in the crypto space you don't actually get you get on chain transparency but you don't get like reporting requirements associated yeah. with a lot of those things and but man like i, I don't understand like how I, like i don't feel like consumers are being protected by <laughs> by the sec it by any means. And so I'm just like, this is a bunch of bullshit. I mean, I think it's an antiquated construct, right? And I think that you could argue that there maybe is a place for a government regulator to um, put a stamp of approval or something, or like it should be, SEC should be like an opt-in thing, right? But we also live in a society in the US here where if you're, if you've been to any rural area, there's probably a casino now that's like within one hour's driving distance or one and a half. And if you go to those casinos, the small town casinos, it's literally people just gambling away their social security checks and stuff like that. And so people are allowed to do that. People are allowed to sports bet live with like up, to, you know, with really high limits up to like their net worth in a lot of cases, but like they're not responsible enough to like buy a digital token. You know, at some point people have to take responsibility for their own decisions. That's my point of view. Same here. Truth. Yeah. Truth. <laughs> D DC. Well, first of all, everybody should follow DC investor. Um, it, it, his account's not on the stage, but we have it tagged. I am DC investor. I'm sure many of you, if not most of you already follow him, but make sure you give him a follow. DC has like CNBC or any of these TV networks ever reached out to you to, to come on? They haven't, but, um, I kind of, I keep a kind of like low profile and just do stuff that I like want to do. So, you know, I like talking to people who are like in the space. I'm not trying to be like a grandstand presenter for everybody. I just like to engage with people who are actually interested in this stuff. Um, and so that's why I'm happy to come and talk to you guys. Well, we appreciate it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not even trying to like, you know, uh, blow smoke here. I just think that uh, a lot of the people that have represented NFTs on TV have had a right to do so. I mean, you think of people going on CNBC and everything, and obviously people has the right to talk about NFTs. But I feel like um, the language that CNBC speaks is not the language that people speaks as an artist, right? And we need more, <laughs> right. we need people that speak the same language on CNBC for, for uh, NFTs and, and crypto to be properly understood. No, I, I appreciate that. And I think, uh, you know, if CNBC wants to reach out, we can certainly chat. But I think that <laughs> I, I, that Beeple interview was hilarious because the guy's like, how much money did you make off it? And people just starts cracking up. He's like, that's your first question, really? It's well, just like <laughs> that one was a really good one. Uh, I, I just think of the early Beeple interviews. They were like, and how did you develop this technology? Beeple's like, I did not make Ethereum. You know, like, <laughs> like, that was not me. <laughs> 
there's a lot of misunderstanding out there. And, you know, for in that misunderstanding, I'm just going to say reiterate is alpha for people who really understand the long-term value proposition of this stuff. So it won't be this misunderstood forever. Can't, can't wait for us to get to that point. Look, ladies and gentlemen, make sure you follow DC. Some of the best insight you will get on Ethereum, on crypto art, on NFTs in general. Very sober tweets from DC um, reminding you to kind of keep it simple. That's at IMDC Investor on Twitter. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we have an artist spotlight drop for you all today. If you go to the nifty.com and put in the, uh, the nifty.com slash claim, put in the code elsewhere and you can get this free NFT by very talented artist Joyce Karotkin. Again, just to remind everyone, Artist Spotlight is something that we do to support artists in the space. It is not sponsored. Uh, Joyce did not have to pay for this. This is something that we wanted to do to make sure that more eyes can get on Joyce's work. Very, very cool painting. If I'm not mistaken, that is a watercolor that was digitally rendered by Joyce. Very cool stuff. And there, Joyce has a limited edition drop available right now um, that you all can go check out. Go to JoyceKarotkin.com. Clemente has uh, the link pinned to the Twitter space. Um, but look, that's our show, ladies and gentlemen. We do the show Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. Eastern time each and every week on Twitter spaces, YouTube for the video feed. Video feed is actually also on Twitter right now uh, and also Apple and Spotify podcasts. One more monster shout out to DC Investor. Nick, you were going to add something? Yeah. So her companion piece, there's literally only 10 of them at a cost of 0.015 ETH. Uh, It's linked on that page. I feel like 10 people can uh, <laughs> grab uh, a, a piece for 0.015. That's like basically uh, the, the, I think the gas costs more on this, uh, on this particular uh, piece. I think I'm going to uh, mint one of these. There you go. Well, it's on Ethereum, so you know there's going to be gas. Boom, boom, boom. Okay, anyway, uh, <laughs> monster shout out. It says the Bitcoin maxi where, you, where it takes 16 hours for a transaction to go up and it doesn't even show on the block explorer until... 2025. So, yeah, I mean, that's cool. The Block Explorer thing on Bitcoin is very, very annoying. I was very frustrated by that when I first found out you just can't see transactions on Bitcoin. That was a little annoying. But anyway, one more thank you to DC Investor, man. We got to do this more often. And thanks so much for coming for a second time. Thanks, guys. It was really my pleasure. I enjoyed chatting with you all. Absolutely. CNBC, get them booked. Uh, Catch you guys (laughs) next time, 9 a.m. Eastern time. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you later.